Let's pray. Father, thank you for your Lord's Day. Thank you for a day of rest, a day of worship, a day to focus our minds on things above rather than the things of this earth. Lord, we pray that, that you would uh, guide us, that you would uh, feed us this morning, uh, not only on uh, this history lesson and your word preached, but on your table. And Father, we pray that, um, that we would be nourished on your word and able to serve you as your glory deserves in the coming week. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today we're going to be thinking about and looking at the life of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards. Um, I'm going to close this door really quick. Jonathan Edwards. Who knows anything about Jonathan Edwards? We all kind of familiar with Jonathan Edwards. He's He's renowned as one of the greatest intellectuals of our country by uh, those who haven't read his sermons, <laughs> right? Uh, we know him as a, a, a godly man, a preacher, a teacher in the church, um, but um, Yale wants to claim him as one of America's greatest intellectuals, and he was that. He wrote... He wrote on a lot of topics, a lot of topics beyond what uh, we would think pastor writing about, but what we're finding out as we study uh, men in history is that a lot of these early pastors, early American pastors, were uh, had their hands in science, had their hands in all kinds of different uh, realms, and so they really were scholars uh, as well as pastors. Um, <clears throat> So Cotton Mather, which I taught on last time, his dates are 1663 to 1728. Um, Jonathan Edwards is born in 1703, so there's about 25 years of overlap between Cotton Mather and Jonathan Edwards, to give it some context. I don't remember what Abigail Adams' dates were, but it would have been, there would have been some overlap with, with Edwards, I think at the end of her life, so, um, or at the end of his life. So he was born in East Windsor, Connecticut in 1703. Um, that is the same year that John Wesley was born, uh, to give you some, again, some more context. In uh, 1716, he's admitted to Yale at 13 years old. He graduates from Yale four years later and then goes to study theology um, at Yale for a few years, and then takes his first pastorate, so 1722, that would make him 19 or 20 years old. I think he was 20 years old when he took his first pastorate, and that was in New York City, um, New York Presbyterian Church. He was there for eight months, and then was, uh, it wasn't because of any trouble he got into, he does get into trouble in one of his churches, and we'll get to that, but um, it was because he went back to Yale to be a tutor and to do some work there. And then in 1726, he's called to a church in Northampton, Massachusetts, and 
he is called as an assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. So he goes to work there as the assistant to his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard. That's 1726. He is married in 1727 to Sarah Pierpont. And then in 1729, Solomon Stoddard dies. And so Jonathan Edwards takes over the the main uh, preaching duties and leadership of the church. He, it's, it's now, so we're ne- we've now made it to the 1730s, and the 1730s is when the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening begins uh, through that decade, and more toward the, the center of the decade. And it hits Northampton, when he preaches a sermon called A Divine and Supernatural Light. Um, There seems to be a stirring of the Spirit through that and many conversions. He writes during these years of the 1730s a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. So he's starting already to think about revival, what it is, what it isn't, what are these strange manifestations? What, what marks real revival as opposed to just a, a false emotionalism? He begins working through those questions. Uh, 1737, uh, 1738, he uh, publishes Charity and Its Fruits, um, where he, gives, he actually gives the sermons. It's sermons on 1 Corinthians 13. That may be a book that you're familiar with, Charity and Its Fruits. Many of you have read that. If you have not read it, you should. Uh, wonderful sermons on the love passage of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, really excellent. About this time, uh, George Whitfield arrives in Savannah, Georgia to do his work. Um, running the orphanage that the Wesleys tried to get going. Um, Whitfield takes that work over and then uh, begins preaching up and down the, the coast of, of the, um, the colonies. Uh, 1739, he writes his personal narrative about his childhood um, and his conversion. Again, really helpful reading. Uh, Whitfield joins Edwards in revival pe- preaching about 1740. Uh, again, these are uh, in- amazing, I mean, names that we've studied, and here they all just rubbing elbows with one another, going up and down the coast uh, preaching. It's wonderful. Uh, 1741, he writes the distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God, and he preaches his sermon that he's most known for, not at his home church, but at Enfield, Connecticut, sinners in the hands of an angry God. We'll, get, we'll, we'll talk about that more um, in a bit when, if we have time. Um, then 1742, some thoughts concerning the present revival of religion in New England. 1746, a treatise concerning religious affections. So he's, for, for a decade, he's thinking about revival. He's trying to to figure out what is genuine and what is not. And, uh, and so he, he spends a lot of time on that. 1747, David Brainerd dies at Edwards' home. David Brainerd was an early missionary to the American Indians. And his journals have been published and a lot of 
I mean, how many of you are familiar with David Brainerd's journals? Yeah, I see some hands going up. Again, really, uh, David Brainerd, uh, or Jim Elliott reminds me of David Brainerd. Same sort of just wholehearted passion for the holiness of God and uh, willing to go anywhere. Uh, the difference between Jim Elliott and David Brainerd is David Brainerd was a very sick, just afflicted with illness all the time and died very young. 1748, dissension starts in Edwards Church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And the issue is the Lord's table. Who, who can come to the Lord's table? Who cannot? Solomon Stoddard had had a, a much more open view than Jonathan Edwards. Edwards wanted to reform. And, uh, of course, the church didn't like change. And so they booted him in 1750. He got two years of controversy there at the end. And they boot him out. I mean, think of Jonathan Edwards you know, whose sermons we, <clears throat> we read still and who we're still talking about, getting pushed out of his church, which is sort of a mind-boggling concept, but um, <clears throat> perhaps speaks more to his orthodoxy than any of his books he's written. Um, he preaches a farewell sermon to the Northampton Church in 1750, and he goes from Northampton, which was a you know, because of Solomon Stoddard's work, his grandfather's work was a well-known church. He goes to Little Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is not a major church. And uh, he goes there and takes over work as a missionary to the American Indians. There's a little, little uh, uh, tribe there that he uh, wants to... Uh, takes over as pastor to the settlers. He's a missionary to the, I think it's the Mohican Indians there in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. I went to Stockbridge. I didn't go to, when, when, one summer when Sarah was, was studying at Tanglewood, I went along because I knew I could go to old historical churches and old libraries. And uh, there's a there's a wonderful sense of history, I mean, anywhere along the coast, really, but, um, but you, go up to, you go up to Massachusetts, I've spent some time in Maine as well, got some great old books at old bookstores and, and uh, old libraries. Libraries were pulling out hymnals that were dated like 1798 and just selling them for a buck at, like a, at a, a book, book sale. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Um, <laughs> So, uh, so anyway, I went to the Stockbridge Church, and of course, it's a beautiful church. It's been maintained. It's part of the, the, the UCC, the, um, what is that? Uh, United Church of Christ, yeah, which is not Orthodox, right, which gave up the ghost a long time ago. And um, so I walk in, and I'm just, you know, pleased to be breathing in the, the same air as or, you know, not the same air anymore, but um, be in the same space, see the wonderful, um, uh, the, the graveyards, you know, with, with um, headstones from the, the early 1600s, 
melting. You can barely read them. You know, they've just decayed over time. And you go in the church and you look, they, of course, which you should never do in a church. You should never put up pictures of your pastor and previous pastors. If you're in a church like that, um, oh, brother. But, but here, in that church, an old historical church, you know, where you've got famous names, you want to put up, and especially if Jonathan Edwards is in there, and so you go, you know, Jonathan Edwards, and you, you go down through the line, and it gets more, more contemporary, and then the last one is the husband and wife team that are currently pastoring the church, and I'm like, oh, oh, man, um, it was so depressing to me at the time, but I should have expected it, and, and I should have expected it given what we know about the time period, that in the 18th century, and in, you know, um, deism and that, that whole thing that we talked about with the atoms is percolating and becoming very strong in that commitment to enlightened rationalism, and so that just decimates the church in New England, um, and so uh, that was... That was my time in Massachusetts. Um, so 1750 to 57, he's in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Not a big place, still not a big place. And uh, works there, writes a careful and strict inquiry into the modern prevailing notions of freedom of the will, and writes the nature of true virtue and the end for which God created the world. And both of those remain unpublished until after his death. In 1757, a year after the birth of Mozart, um, he's chosen, <laughs> just a little context, um, um, <clears throat> Bach dies in 1750. So, um, overlap with Bach and, and Edwards. I mean, it's, it's weird. It just makes you short out when you start thinking about who lived at the same time. But anyway... Um, 1757, he's chosen the, college, the president of the College of New Jersey, Princeton, and he goes to Princeton, New Jersey. He's inaugurated the president in the following year. He writes uh, the great Christian doctrine of original sin defended at that point and then dies of smallpox on March 22nd, of just months after he was installed as the president of Princeton. And... He dies because of an inoculation that he took, he being committed to, uh, to science and the relief of suffering through, uh, through medicine. He gives himself to what he knew can, was dangerous and dies from it. One of the, the small percentage that died from the, uh, nonetheless, di- um, percentage that died from smallpox inoculation. So his work was done, and the Lord said enough, and brought him into his presence at that point. And so that's a, that's a swift overview of his life. Um, much more could be said. There are uh, just a few points on, his, on works that I think, I've already done that a little bit, but some works that you should read. Uh, he wrote Resolutions. When uh, he was very young, he, this would have been during his time in New York and then maybe f- when he first got to Northampton. He writes resolutions and 
they, um, they were instructions for life, right? They were things that he was sort of making a commitment to and um, wanted to uh, follow for, for the glory of the Lord. Uh, things like resolved, if ever I shall fall and grow dull so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. So, um, many more like that. Resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Um, Resolved to let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. So, very helpful, um, very good uh, charges to uh, those who are feeling lazy in their walk with the Lord. Um, <clears throat> I think it's a good practice to um, commit to these things, to review these things, to come back to them, right? It's just so they're not uh, things that cause you to break the law of the Lord. He wrote, um, again, Charity and Its Fruits, uh, you should read, um, everybody should read that, should be, um, should be on our shelves. But um, Edward said, when people ask me what the most important books I've ever read are, or this is what R.C. Sproul said about this, when people ask me what, what the most important books I've ever read are, Charity and His Fruits is on my top ten list. It's one of those books that I return to over and over again. That's what Sproul said. And um, I, I keep coming back to it uh, continually myself, especially the last sermon in there, which is called Heaven, a World of Love, Heaven, a World of Charity. Charity and its fruits. By charity, he's using the old, the old meaning of charity, which is love, right? So um, love and its fruits could, would be a way of putting it today. Um, There's so many works that he wrote. Um, the, if you want to study the, um, the Great Awakenings, you really have to read a treatise concerning religious affections, which he wrote in 1746. Um, <clears throat> he argues against the extremes of emotionalism on the one hand and intellectualism on the other. Right, so it, he's he's finding this middle ground where you don't, you know, he's seeing he's seeing that Calvinism can lead to dead orthodoxy on the one hand, right, a formalism, a dead orthodoxy, and on the other hand, he's seeing this emotionalism where people are falling down as if dead, they're barking, they're shouting, they're um, th there are all sorts of manifestations uh, such as that, and he rejects the one and and make sure that it's not, 
that he knows that he's not overcorrecting into a dead orthodoxy. He was actually as, uh, an advocate of the Great Awakenings. There were Calvinists of the time that rejected all of that. This is the, the I always get it wrong, old light and new light divide, right? And he would be one of the new lights along with uh, Whitfield and, um, and they, they preached, they saw that and believed that the Spirit of God was at work in these revivals. And mostly, they saw it by the work of the Holy Spirit in the churches, right? When, when there's a mixed multitude in the churches, uh, there were many of those, uh, you know, what, what previously... Uh, were tares um, being converted and becoming wheat. And so he works through those issues in there, and um, it, it's, it's a very helpful uh, book. He wrote a biography of David Brainerd. It usually accompanies his journals right at the beginning of it. He's got this bio of David Brainerd, again, worth reading. Uh, one of his major works is Freedom of the Will. Again, a great book to read, um, heavy theology, and, and we think, well, why would, why would Edwards write a book called The Freedom of the Will and, and Martin Luther write a book called Bondage of the Will? Well, um, the, the two books don't disagree with one another. Um, Edwards, Edwards staunchly supports the sovereignty of God in everything, Right, but he's he's um, he's digging into uh, some of the questions that were being advanced by Arminians at that point, and uh, digging into that question of um, self determination and predestination, and um, and so Edwards. Uh, Edwards is the guy that we would say. Um, when you're in your cage stage of Calvinism, you, you hate free will. You just you annihilate it and say, there's no such thing as free will. You can't do anything apart from God. And, and then you learn something about theology and you realize, okay, there is something called free will. God does make us moral agents with the ability to make choices that are real. Yes, his sovereignty rules over all and everything works out according to his will. We believe that. But, but we're, not, um, we're not robots. We're not machines uh, in that sense. God gives us a free will. What, what, what Edwards argues against is an autonomous will. right? A will that's completely separated from the influence of God. right? But that doesn't mean we don't have a free will where we make real choices. We do make those choices. An autonomous will would be, is a, is a mind-boggling concept. To have a will separated from the absolute sovereign God um, would make you do insane things, right? An autonomous will would be grounded in, in nothing. And so you would be if you lived that way with an autonomous will, you would make absolutely, completely arbitrary decisions based upon no influences. We never make a decision without influence. Never. 
And we always choose the strongest desire of our hearts. We always choose it. Edwards would argue that. We always choose the, most, the strongest desires of our hearts. And so we have that free will to choose it, but we can only choose what resides in our hearts. So that's why the heart needs to change and go from hard to soft. It needs to be filled with the Holy Spirit rather than wickedness. And then you freely choose what God has made, uh, what God has put in, his heart, in the heart through his regeneration. Anyway, all of that is in there, and um, it's a very helpful read. The, the last book of his that was published, which I haven't read, is... Um, and I think it would be, um, I think it would be the the tasty side of postmillennialism, um, the end for which God created the world. Right, and um, <clears throat> and the the whole point of it is God created the whole world for His own glory, and He will bring that about over the whole earth. Uh, through the work of his church. And uh, so that's the ultimate end of everything, the glory of God, right? Which is the first, you know, which is the beginning of the Shorter Catechism. Um, Edwards was not a Presbyterian. He was a Congregationalist pastor, right? But um, let's not fault uh, Edwards for that. That was the predominant uh, conservative church of the time, and any time the church has got into trouble, they formed pr impromptu presbyteries. They got together churches to help deal with issues in churches, so they functioned as Presbyterians when, when there was reason to. Um, and uh, anyway, so we would see a lot of similarities between uh, their uh, church polity and, and our own. Now, here's where I want to get to. Um, how many of you have read or heard Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Most people here, yeah. Why did you read it? Yeah, I read it in a high school literature class, public school. That's where I read it. came about it honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just had no, I wasn't a believer at the time, didn't, wasn't going to church, and here we are reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in a, in a I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, reading this, and it was just kind of, it's like mind-boggling, and, and if you read it in public school, the whole purpose is to, like people do with Cotton Mather in the Salem Witch Trials, is to, um, is to point out how bad and oppressive this sort of preaching is and how it would afflict people's consciences and annihilate their, their self-esteem, right? I mean, that's probably what we discussed. I don't remember discussing it. I just remember reading it. But it was, it was so foreign to me. I just had no context for this. It really did feel like, like stepping into a museum. I just I had no context for it. Now I read it and I think, I lament that there is not preaching such as that today. Right? There is no one, no one warns the sheep 
like that. I don't do it. Um, and, and no one I hear today warns the sheep in, in that way to warn them uh, and to preach judgment. We don't hear preaching on judgment. Does, preach, does judgment, is that a part of what Scripture uh, puts forward to us? God's holiness and the judgment that is coming and the judgments that came all through history. Think of the work of the prophets. That's all they did. They warned. They preached judgment. They said, turn away. And that was the kindness of God, right, that leads to repentance. Um, this is kindness to preach judgment, to warn in this way. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's brandished as hellfire and brimstone preaching. I would just call it faithful and biblical. The thing is, you can't, if you read your Bibles, which you should do, and you should do regularly, right? If you read your Bibles and you're not prepared to face judgment and God's judgment against sin, you'll just be unhappy your whole reading. I mean, from beginning to end, you'll get to the point where when God calls the, the, the people of Israel to destroy a city for their idolatry, you'll be screaming, unfair. That's unfair. How could God, you know, how could God afflict those people like that? And you will have a grid. You will begin judging God based upon your modern sensibilities of fairness rather than coming at it from God's perspective as the Holy One. And that's more, more than anything, it's the preaching of Edwards and uh, the topics he preached on where you have a sense, you have a sense that he meditated on the holiness of God and he truly feared God and that's what he put forward to his sheep. He cared for them. And so... Um, and so it's the holiness of God that stands out. Of course, he would say in the religious affections that the proof that you're a Christian is not a whole bunch of other things, but the proof that you're a Christian is that you want to be holy as God is holy. There are so many other things that people confuse as to what indicates a truly regenerate person. He says, no, it's this, holiness. God is holy and we're to be holy, and you will have a desire for holiness if you are a Christian. If the Holy Spirit lives within you, you will desire holiness. It's very simple. So, where to go on from here? I want to I share some of his other sermons. Just, just little snippets of his other sermons. I mean, just here are some titles. Here are the titles of his sermons. The Eternity of Hell's Torments. The Future Punishment of the Wicked, Unavoidable and Intolerable. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. Of Endless Punishment. Wicked Men Useful in Their Destruction Only. 
Wicked men of the past are still in hell. The torments of hell are exceedingly great. Procrastination of the sin and folly of depending on future time. Men naturally are God's enemies. The folly of looking back and fleeing out of Sodom. The vain self-flatteries of the sinner. The end of the wicked contemplated by the righteous. Hypocrites deficient in the duty of prayer. Ouch. I mean, you don't even have to read the sermon and you're convicted, right? It's just like, mm. oh man, hypocrites deficient in the duty of prayer. Go read it. You will fall under conviction. It is a wonderful sermon. And all these you can find online if you just Google them um, by title. Uh, <clears throat> so let me share some of the sermon, the sermon with you. Oh, man, which one? It may be inquired. This is from Sinners in Zion, tenderly warned. So Sinners in Zion. So what is he going to address? What was Zion? What's Zion? The what? The church. It may be inquired, who are the sinners in Zion? I answer that they are those who are in a natural condition among the visible people of God. Those in the church who don't believe. Zion, or the city of David of old, was a type of the church. And the church of God in Scripture is perhaps more frequently called by the name of Zion than by any other name. Okay, good covenant theology here. And commonly by Zion is meant the true church of Christ or the invisible church of true saints. But sometimes by this name is meant the visible church consisting of those who are outwardly by profession and external privileges the people of God. This is intended by Zion in this text. The greater part of the world are sinners. Christ's flock is and ever hath been but a little flock. And the sinners of the world are of two sorts, those who are visibly of Satan's kingdom, who are without the pale of the visible church, and those who do not profess the true religion nor attend the external ordinance of, of it. Besides these, there are the sinners in Zion. Both are the objects of the displeasure and wrath of God. Right? So, I mean, just that statement. He's not a sacramentalist, right? He's not a formalist. He's saying that there are those who, though part of the visible church, they're in the same state as those who have never attended a church, who, have, who, are, who are clearly committed to the kingdom of Satan. No difference when you boil it down, right? He's acknowledging that they're a part of the visible church. They may be baptized. They're part of the visible church, but their baptism doesn't save them. Right? And commonly by Zion, is, uh, where was I? Besides these, there are the sinners in Zion. Both are the objects of the pleasure and wrath of God, but his wrath is more especially manifested in Scripture against whom? The sinners in the church. Sinners in Zion will have by far the lowest place in hell. They are exalted nearest to heaven in this world, and they will be lowest in hell in another. 
The same is meant by hypocrites. Sinners in Zion are all hypocrites, for they make a profession of the true religion. They attend God's ordinances and make a show of being the worshipers of God, but all is hypocrisy. How fearfulness will hereafter surprise sinners in Zion. This is the second section. He says, they will hereafter be afraid. Now many of them seem to have little or no fear. They are quiet and secure. Nothing will awaken them. The most awful threatenings and the loudest warnings do not much move them. They are not so much moved with them, but they can eat and drink and sleep and go about their worldly concerns without much disturbance. But the time will come when the hardest and most stupid wretches will be awakened. Though now preaching will not awaken them, and the death of others will not make them afraid, though seeing others awakened and converted will not much affect them, though they can stand all that is to be heard and seen in a time of general outpouring of the Holy Spirit without being much moved, yet the time will come when they will be awakened and fear will take hold of them. They will be afraid of the wrath of God. However senseless they be now, they will hereafter be sensible of the awful greatness of God. And that is a fearful thing to fall into his hands. That's all very mean. Isn't it? But I mean, we can brush up against the doctrine of hell, but we don't have to get into these distinctions between people, right? I mean, that's the way we approach things. Um, Tim Keller, to put somebody on the opposite side of the pole, um, said something about hell a few years ago, and it was just so flaccid. It was just like hell is, hell is going to be gnarly because, you know, you'll be sad about not having heaven. You know, just some really just weak statement that had nothing to do with the, the character of God. Right? The character of God that demands that hell be a place of eternal, endless, unmitigated torment. I mean, it, it, when I read Edwards, I think, what, we, what are we talking about as pastors? I read Edwards and I'm like, hell should be mentioned every sermon. The reality of hell, because, because we're all headed toward our deaths. And if we don't have faith in Jesus Christ, then it's his presence or hell. It's eternal punishment or eternal paradise based upon faith, right? And so I'm like, how can we not be, I mean, there are other things to talk about. I realize that, right? We, we have to talk about uh, godliness, which is a whole uh, world of topics, right? But on the other hand, um, woe is the preacher who, um, who, who avoids the subject of hell and its reality. Here's, speaking of that, here's another clip from the eternity of hell's torments. He says, first, be entreated to consider attentively how great and awful a thing eternity is. 
Although you cannot comprehend it the more by considering, yet you may be made more sensible that it is not a thing to be disregarded. Do but consider what it is to suffer extreme torment forever and ever. To suffer it day and night from one year to another, from one age to another, and from 1,000 ages to another, and so adding age to age and thousands to thousands, in pain, in wailing and lamenting, groaning and shrieking and gnashing your teeth, with your souls full of dreadful grief and amazement, and with your bodies and every member full of racking torture, without any possibility of getting ease, without any possibility of moving God to pity by your cries, without any possibility of hiding yourself from him, without any possibility of diverting your thoughts from your pain, without any possibility of obtaining any manner of mitigation or help or change for the better. Second, do but consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. How dismal will it be when you are under these racking torments to know assuredly that you never, never shall be delivered from them. To have no hope when you shall wish that you might be turned into nothing but shall have no hope of it. When you shall wish that you might be turned into a toad or a serpent but shall have no hope of it. When you would rejoice if you might but have any relief. After you shall have endured these torments millions of ages but shall have no hope of it after you shall have worn out the age of the sun, moon, and stars, in your dolorous groans and lamentations without rest day and night or one minute's ease, yet you shall have no hope of ever being delivered. After you shall have worn a thousand more such ages, you shall have no hope but shall know that you are not wit, one whit nearer to the end of your torments. But that still there are the same groans, the same shrieks, the same doleful cries incessantly to be made by you, and that the smoke of your torment shall still ascend up forever and ever. Your souls, which shall have been agitated with the wrath of God all this while, will still exist to bear more wrath. Your bodies, which shall have been burning all this while in these growing flames, shall not have been consumed, but will remain to roast through eternity, which will not have been at all shortened by what shall have been past. You may, by considering, make yourselves more sensible than you ordinarily are. But it is a little you can conceive of what it is to have no hope in such torments. How sinking would it be to you to endure such pain as you have felt in this world without any hopes and to know that you never should be delivered from it nor have one minute's rest. You can now scarcely conceive how doleful that would be. How much more to endure the vast weight of the wrath of God without hope. The more the damned in hell think of the eternity of their torments, the more amazing will it appear to them. And alas, they will not be able to keep it out of their minds. Their tortures will not divert them from it, but will fix their attention to it. Oh, how dreadful will eternity appear to them after they shall have been thinking on it for ages together and shall have so long an experience of their torments. The damned in hell will have two infinites perpetually to amaze them and swallow them up. One is the infinite God whose wrath they will bear and in whom they will behold their perfect an irreconcilable enemy. The other is the infinite duration of their torment. 
It's awful. It's awful. You know, when we witness to unbelieving family members, this is what we all have in the back of our mind. Right? This is what we're feeling. And that's why it's so hard for us to go into this context where, where somebody wants to be, you know, you go there and you think, well, he needs to be encouraged. Right? And we, we, but we have in the back of our mind this reality that if you don't repent and come to Christ, this is your future. Um, but you see how, you see how, I don't know, let's talk about this. What do you think of these sermons? You see how, I mean, it's connected to God's character. He's not just, he's not just lobbing out. It's not scare tactics, right? He's not lobbying. He's, he's obviously getting, he's pulling from Scripture statements about what it says about God's character Specifically, his wrath, right? And the weeping and the gnashing of teeth that are promised to those who reject his son. The infinite greatness of God, the infinite wrath of God is the only worthy punishment for those who spurn his son that God the Father infinitely loves. Right? That punishment only fits the crime. The punishment is corresponding to the depth of love between the Father and the Son. When Jesus was baptized, right, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And for those who reject that, wrath. Wrath. Unmitigated. No second chance wrath. I mean, would our churches today be helped by contemplations of these things or is it the way to kill your church thinking as a pastor <laughs> there is no appetite for this kind of preaching you know and that's the fault of the sheep there's no appetite for it and as much as pastors don't have appetite for it. If they work up their courage maybe one Sunday a year and do it, the sheep don't receive it. And then the emails start coming. <laughs> Post-sermon emails. But even better, anonymous letters dropped off in the mailbox. Bring them. <laughs> we'll be dusting them for fingerprints. <laughs> Never done that. <laughs> it hadn't occurred to me up until this point. <clears throat> anyway, I didn't realize the time and we're out of time. But are there any comments on on this? I mean, I could go through 25 other sermons of Jonathan Edwards. And conversely, we could go read uh, Heaven, A World of Love, and we'd be, we'd be lifted up into heaven and our spirits would soar and we'd be filled with joy, right? And so it's not like this is all he did. 
right? He, he was preaching God's word, the fullness of and the whole of God's word. And so, um, read some Edward sermons. The academic works are very difficult. Religious affections is very difficult. But his sermons will smack you in the face. They're so helpful. So, um, they're all online. You can find them. Um, just Google it. But um, I was going to read a few more, but we, we are out of time. That's Jonathan Edwards. We'll be lo- I'll be also talking about his wife in one of the future uh, sessions, Sarah uh, Edwards, and a uh, pretty extraordinary lady. And we'll go through that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the mercy and the, that Jesus is our hiding place. That to be found in him is to be transported into the heavenlies and out of the domain of darkness. And we thank you for rescuing our souls from hell. And Father, we pray that, that our minds would truly and properly think upon your wrath because it's a part of your glory. And thank you for the way that these sermons still cause us to do that. Father, be with us as we come to worship you, to uh, feed upon your word and the body and blood of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.